are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. All right. All right. This is, let's get serious, Michael. Okay. Michael Garfield. Third time on the Here We Are podcast. I think you are tied for most appearances. That might be that might be true. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone's okay. had four. So there you go. Very special guest. Lots of new exciting things in your life. New hair, new job, new city, new baby. Facts. Family, all sorts of all of the things. Life changes quickly, as we're finding out. And uh, and let's start off with talking about science communication, shall we? I think we shall. So I've been thinking about this, um, about science coming up against human nature, um, which is that, so, so say you take um, something like the weather, where, you know, we, we have a pretty solid history of making some human progress, of, of figuring out some patterns, and over time, and, you know, rain dancing, and uh, then farming and figuring out seasons kind of had more better and better predictions farmers almanacs and now you have this cutting edge technology i'm sure there's been some errors along the way but it's been a pretty decent trajectory toward making more accurate predictions about the weather it doesn't make you feel much better when when it said it was going to be sunny out today and it rains on you um you know it's still frustrating you still think that meteorologist uh, it knows nothing, and so why listen to him? Um, and and then you have like one side that if a hurricane's going to come, says that you know the the gays did this or something. You have another side that says like, well, that overestimates science ability and assumes that their uh, scientists are just controlling all of the weather. And um, do you, do you think that there's any way around that? I mean, my phone, look at what we're able to do right now with this technology, with these amazing Zoom backgrounds that are going to look very silly in two years. And, um, and the, this cell phone, which you could see if it weren't for my nearly flawless Zoom background. Um, but despite all of these, this amazing computer that I have in my hand, if I drop a call on it, I still feel like throwing it out the window and feeling <laughs> and feeling like cell phones are good for nothing. Um, so, it, do do you think that's do you think that's kind of do you think that's a somewhat accurate analogy for just kind of how we um, think about science generally? You mean. You just take it for granted, and then when it doesn't work, you're pissy about it? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I okay, so the new job that you mentioned, I've been working for the last year and a half uh, managing social media, and then for the last seven months, also hosting and producing the podcast for the Santa Fe Institute, which some of your listeners who are science enthusiasts probably already know is a a hub for international complex systems research um it was it was started in the 1980s and 
their interest is in systems where you know behavior emerges that can't be predicted by uh, reducing things to the parts, right? It's like weather is a is a good example mm -hmm. of this. Um, you know, pretty much any any phenomenon of human interest would qualify. Uh, activity of the brain can't be predicted by looking at the neurons of your brain. You know, anything that exists in networks, and um, often um, not with weather, but with other complex phenomena like uh, an epidemic. It's the case that the various agents, the various you know pieces of that system, are adapting to one another's evolutionary strategies, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that's just sort of a you know part of what makes a system uh, a complex adaptive system is the fact that, for example, um, there's a big change in the economy, so you change. Well, you're like, well, okay, now I've got different. I mean, think about how my skills can be re reallocated to a different work. Um, you know, like you can't do stand-up comedy tour anymore, mm -hmm. right? So, like, so that that changes. But of course, now that uh, all of the entertainers are moving online for virtual events, it changes the the burden on telecommunications networks. It changes the you know the the way that people are using their free time. Um, it changes the social dynamics because suddenly, you know, you can't do a gig every night. Like you, you're, you're appealing to your entire audience uh, all at once, mm -hmm. you know, for, and so, you know, there's like, you, you put all this stuff together and you end up with this sort of uh, un, unfathomably high dimensional uh, situation dimensions in terms of like the number of variables involved, if you were to try and model it, you know, so, at any rate, like we live in a world now where um, even though we were we grew up being taught that science is about creating a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, and then using an, that process iteratively over time to build a sort of overarching general theory of things, and that we're gonna you know we're gonna get better and better in our understanding and our predictive ability at the same time mm. um, with systems that we are ever more completely capable of describing. Um, the reality of, of our world is that um, as our president, David Krakauer, who's uh, you know, a really insightful evolutionary biologist, uh, whose work I've been, I was actually following for years before I came to work at SFI, um, he studies the evolution of intelligence and by extension, the evolution of stupidity. So there's, there's quite a bit of, uh, I think, uh, ground there to cover if you want. But, yeah. you know, David just wrote a piece for Aeon magazine about how um, understanding and prediction are really two different things. And we get better and better at predicting certain things at the same time that we get worse and worse at understanding them. And a really, a really good example is the uh the area of like black box machine learning you know where these machines are not really building uh models in any kind of human readable sense they're 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 predicting uh outcomes based on the correlations and like statistical patterns within these enormous data sets that they don't understand right yeah. like the machine doesn't know what it's actually 
correlating and yeah. then the human doesn't know how it uh, did it. My, it my, did my, it. my brother, my brother has, uh, has this job in big data. He actually, should I? Yeah, I think this is okay. He works for, <laughs> he works for FedEx. Um, and, and so, you know, there's just this tremendous amount of, you know, the undertaking of, of building efficiencies within a shipping, you know, a massive shipping company and everything has. So, so they, they actually, you'll, you'll probably enjoy this. They'll, uh, they'll do exactly what you were saying. And then, and then they, and then they kind of try to reverse engineer, you know, if the black box made an accurate prediction, <laughs> they go like, how, how did it do that? And then they try to reverse engineer. Here's what I think you'll enjoy is that they, they have, uh, you know, he's had meetings where they break down parts of, of the coding and what it did. And they'll actually even put like matrix characters it, like, okay, this part's like Neo, this part's like Morpheus, this part's like the Orc. And that's how they kind of create these mental models that, that, to, to put on, uh, on top of this artificial intelligence to make sense of what it's doing. Well, it's, I, I mean, and there's nothing new about this. This is like, this is this is similar to the role between our evolutionary biology and and consciousness um, as well, where it was uh, you know our our genes our genes have no idea that we're <laughs> that we're here or that we're these that we're these things, and we're trying to figure out what the fuck which direction our genes are driving us in, and what are useful to us and what aren't, and what what data are they taking in to make sense of things, and how valid is that data in our modern <laughs> in a modern environment. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think, you know, he made, David in that essay made a really interesting point that, uh, like you just said, you know, this isn't exactly new, like to use a straight edge is a kind of um, cognitive prosthetic, you know, that it's like you, you, it gets you to, like you can draw a straight line with it without having to understand the geometry involved. Yeah. And so a lot of, a lot of geometry is actually sort of a prototypical form of, of being able to predict without understanding. And then, mm -hmm. you know, then, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the models that come out of complex systems science are, are uh, also, you know, very, or, or science in general are very useful for understanding, but because of, you know, stuff like the butterfly effect where a tiny measurement error, um, you know, you're, you're looking at something at one level of resolution and something happening just below that threshold at which you pixelate the world um, has this massive effect that completely changes everything in, in the predictions that you've made. Or, you know, if you're looking at economics that, um, you know, there's always some externality. There's always something that has escaped your equation that, yeah. that you didn't consider. And so like, you know, the, uh, this is a tangent, but like sustainability meets economics in this like impossible effort to try and minimize externalities. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of this like uh, what, what, you know, they tell you like a Sisyphean effort, right? Yeah. Because one of the characteristics of economics that I got to talk about with um, this legendary Stanford econom uh, economist W. Brian Arthur on the on Complexity podcast was about how economics is a perfect example of a complex adaptive system where everyone is acting on a certain model of everyone else's behavior. 
And so like that, there's a, there's a ratchet involved in that where the models get more and more complex and then you have to adapt to everyone else's more complex models. And so, you know, you see this with like in a real brick and like, you know, street level example, you see this with whenever you're on social media and you know, you, you know that Facebook and Twitter are making these extremely high dimensional models of you as a consumer. So you start just like clicking on shit at random to try and throw them off, you know, like that there's, so at any rate, you know, that what mm. happens is um, that we get, uh, you know, trying to navigate these systems, especially when they're the size of the entire planet, like so many of the systems relevant to even like a local human existence are today. Um, you get to a point very quickly where um, two things are happening. One is, your model is never uh, rich enough to explain what's going on. And so even if you, even if you have an understanding, you don't actually have like a great uh, ability to predict the outcome of things. Um, and then, and then two, um, it's an arms race. And so, you know, everybody is, is running up the same sort of impossible slope at the same time. Um, only some people are using like the bodies of other people as a ladder. Uh, okay so that's okay yeah. anyway yeah yeah i i mean well there again i i mean it does it does seem like there are there ends up being some like broad brush kind of solutions that you know like some heuristics i do feel like work like kind of good enough you know like florence nightingale whose birthday it was uh today actually was um uh, was before modern germ theory was able to be like hey i think if people wash their hands a little more uh you know and it had these downstream effects of of um saving a fair amount of life i'm no florence nightingale hist uh, historian but um <laughs> but but this is this is without modern science you know just just i, I mean it does seem like a lot of things tend to at least zero in or at least learn to figure out what's what's wrong like well definitely you don't want to go from fishing around doing an autopsy to delivering a baby we know you don't want to do that um <laughs> we don't know why exactly <laughs> but but you know you could you can kind of do that but then but then when it comes to um you know my um I had a mathematician um, come on who's spent a career theoretically modeling pandemics um, and is now uh, an applied mathematician. Uh, just, just the, I mean, you, you know, just the, the number of considerations just to figure out what might be a best practice just from if you and I want to get together and calculate the risk of one of us infecting one another is already incredibly complex. And then you apply that to, uh, you know, the world and people traveling and how many people are going to, and even if you can be like, all right, well, if everyone just hunkered down for a few weeks, this thing would be gone. Okay. Well, they're not going to do that. What percentage aren't of people aren't going to, okay, well, if we factor in that this percentage won't, uh, all right, but you're still never going to predict that 
there's going to be a bunch of people from a gym outside uh, outside a city hall in Florida doing push-ups and squats to be like, okay, now uh, what's if they're working out outside, what is the chance that someone going by could, <laughs> you know, it, obviously, obviously you're never going to be able to figure out everything. And this is, this is part of the problem with reductionism, which I mean, don't you also feel like reduction reductionism sort of did give birth to emergence in the first well, place? And well, right. Okay. So like, there's two things. One is, um, to your first point and to what you were just talking about with uh, your first point about, you know, predicting the weather. Yeah. And uh, your, your recent comment about interviewing the, the mathematical epidemiologist. I had uh, Caroline Bucky on complexity podcast. Yeah. I'm going to have to start listing future fossils guests here too. <laughs> but, but like yeah. I had Caroline Bucky on. Don't, don't worry. I won't, I won't, I won't give um, anyone else credit. I'm anything else that I express from now on, I'm going to pass off as my own ideas. Oh, perfect. So, <laughs> like Stephen Wolfram. Um, anyway, so, um, so Caroline Bucky was saying, I thought this was a really elegant way of putting it. She said, if you're, if you're a, weather person a meteorologist and you mm. predict it's going to rain tomorrow and everyone uh takes out their umbrellas it's still going to rain whereas if you're an epidemiologist and you say there's going to be a pandemic and then everyone stays home and there's no pandemic then everyone's mad at you because your your model made a prediction that it but it's, it's actually your model actually made the prediction that if everyone did that that, that it, there wouldn't be a pandemic yeah but like you know there's this thing about i mean it's true in epidemiology and it's absolutely true in you know more broadly in climate science when it comes to you know uh human behavior at scale and its effects on yeah meteorological stuff that that the you know that you have to continue modeling the you have to continue updating the model at like time series you know time you know 10 years 20 years as uh things get closer and that this is you know to the the second point here is that this is to your point about uh, reductionism um when i had uh epistemologist david kinney on complexity podcast um he's at sfi looking at um what like philosophy in context, like the philosophy of science in context. And one of his big questions is why there are different fields of science at all in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why do we regard this domain of the universe as physics and this domain as chemistry and this domain as biology and this domain as social science. And he says, basically it has to do with the, um, the economics essentially of how much granularity, how much, fine graining or coarse graining um, is required in order to understand a particular phenomenon. So like as this, this is also true um, as things get closer to you in time, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, to, <laughs> to bring a future fossils guest into this conversation, the extraordinary historian, William Irwin Thompson uh, who is on episodes 42 and 43, one of the biggest inspirations in my life. I think I've brought him up on your show before. Um, he has this great line about how the difference between prediction and prophecy. And he's mm -hmm. like, 
you know, prophets often think they're making a prediction, but they don't understand that history is like walking up to the temple um, on, a, on a, a mountain road with a bunch of switchbacks. And you look up and you see the linear thing and you say, oh, the temple is right there. Mm-hmm. You know, but what you don't take, for, you know, you don't see is all of the turns that you have to make along the way. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, so that's like in the, you know, prophecy and the coarse grain thing can be true. But as soon as you fall to the common human foible of making it a prediction, then you're again, you're missing all of this stuff under the level of resolution at which you made the prophecy. So like, you know, I, I'm in this argument um, with one of my good friends, I've been in this argument with him for almost a decade about Terrence McKenna. And, uh, you know, he's of the, he's of the opinion that Terrence McKenna's uh, pr- prophecies about 2012 were just complete crap, that none of it came true, um, that, you know, his, his, his uh, comments about, uh, McKenna's comments about the, the novelty wave you know, this notion that things were going to keep happening faster and faster and that the world was going to get more and more creative until the, the slope goes vertical and everything is happening at once. And he mm-hmm. said, yeah, this is happening somewhere around 2012. And it's like, all right, there's a way at one time scale, at one level of resolution, you can look at history and say, that didn't happen. But at another level, you can look at history and say, are you kidding me? Like, of course, of course that's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you step back and you look at things as I am inclined to do as like a paleontologist, you look at it, the geological time scale, then you could just yeah, you'd be like, yeah, yeah. 2012 was like the inflection point at which the, the amount of change that we are undergoing in history went vertical. And mm-hmm. like that's that brings us back to, you know, the the topic I proposed, uh, if you want to go there yet. Um, which is about, you know, the, the collision between the things that people are required to know now in order to make it in this world and the amount of attention and cognitive resources we can actually bring to our lives and how that just makes the job of explaining the complexity of our situation or even understanding it um, as experts, just immensely difficult and probably uh, in certain ways, you know, uh, impossible and, and probably probably bringing us up to the lip of, you know, where we, we really need to come up with a different way to organize knowledge and verify expertise and present information and that like everything about the way that we accredit scientific expertise and the way that we communicate the findings of experts is going to have to change. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, this, this particular crisis makes that really obvious and yeah. rant. No, I, I love it. I mean, I mean, it is, I will say that, uh, you know, obviously the book 1984, 1984 came and went and, and look, none of the stuff of people on cameras all the time and, being monitored and none of, none of that stuff <laughs> came to be. So, you know, obviously we got to be weary of, of predictions. I mean, don't you think that um, one thing that we know is that statistics 
can be really useful and that also humans in humans hands you know it's it's um uh, you know, we're just maladapted for understanding these statistics and, and and doing something like um predicting that there's like a 70 percent chance of rain tomorrow and then tomorrow it doesn't rain that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's difficult to explain to anyone is that doesn't necessarily mean that that prediction was wrong because the 30 percent of it not have you know ju just in the same way that if if vegas makes odds that the packers are are two to one odds of winning against the vikings or whatever and then the packers lose like vegas wasn't necessarily wrong they still got their money you know they they still made very accurate predictions and right. if someone was able to make a more accurate prediction they would be able to fleece vegas which they which is a difficult thing to do um and and so that's that's kind of going back to that that like intuitive frustration that we have when we go like, well, that didn't happen, therefore it was wrong. That is the feeling. That's like the quality of the like emotional reaction to hear. But it's, it's hard to step back and say, oh, I guess it was right. It just, I wasn't paying attention to um, what that meant when they made the prediction. Just, just like, I think most people could understand that if you roll a dice and it happens to be six, that it wasn't a hundred percent chance that it was going to be six before you rolled it. Um, then again, there's, there's this whole conversation that I'm really grateful. This is a tangent, but there's a, yeah. I'm really grateful to be seeing the conversation uh, in physics. Now uh, some pockets of, of uh, physics are taking seriously this uh, notion of super determinism, which is that, that, it's not just the past determines the future, but that ev that the future also determines the past. And um, there's a there's a wonderful uh, episode of Future Fossils 117 with Eric Wargo, <laughs> who's a science writer uh, for uh, NSF, who on his off hours wrote this book called Time Loops, where he he examines um, the argument for retrocausality from a number of different directions and um and so this year before uh the pandemic closed everything um this this rather uh, famous physicist sabine hassenfelder um was was going to host a conference on on super determinism and retro causality that mm. i i um you know hugh price and a couple other heavy hitting quantum physicists were scheduled to speak at that so it's like i don't know i mean yes for all intents and purposes questions like that questions about free will um you know sean carroll just had a physicist sean carroll at caltech just had an interview um with the new york times where he said that basically you know he made a statement kind of like david kinney's statement where that like yeah, at one level of reality, there's no such thing as free will, but that's not the level that we live in, right. you know? And so it's like, yeah, may, it may be the case that like for all, for the, for the casino's purposes, it, it's, you know, and I, I wonder about this with stuff like the origins of life, you know, people asking how likely the origins of life were. And it's like, well, 100%, but we, we don't, we don't, 
you know, that's, that's based on a sample size of one and <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, so on yeah yeah i well i love having you on because you're the only guest ever on the here we are podcast that i have to ground usually usually guests have to like <laughs> ground me a little bit I was like, oh, let's, uh, let's bring it down to our level a little um i uh, all right but actually don't take that advice because i love everywhere this is going and and i don't get to have um as um, big and fluid conversations as this, as I do, uh, you know, with these reducive materialistic scientists I'm used to having on here. Uh, I love listening to your show oh, for what it's you. worth. And I feel like, you know, I've, I've, I've used it as a kind of model for m my own role as the uncredentialed every man in the conversations I'm having mm. for the SFI podcast. Yeah. You know, because like you do, you know, there's even I was just reading today that like, you know, even uh, Galileo's big sort of life summing work was, uh, you know, a conversation between the expert and the lay person and then like a guy who got to kind of encourage the lay person and challenge the expert. Mm -hmm. Like this is a very old format, you know, mm -hmm. and, and like you actually know, uh, I think and this is, you know, again, to sort of uh, poke in the direction of you know, the challenges of science communication right now. Yeah. I think you know a lot more about cognitive and attentional biases than a lot of scientists, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and you know that because of your disposition um, as a lifelong learner and as someone who is not an expert, you know, mm -hmm. and as someone, as someone who is willing to um, indulge in the not knowing and, mm -hmm. and, you know, to continue to, explore these things so so as as a and this is this is one of my um i would say one of my things that i i do feel a little more uniquely well suited for is is that um sure i have this oshucks midwestern background blue collar i worked in factories damn it i'm the everyman i i think i think more um more of my training just comes from having to play in front of lots of different audiences and and make you know very very quick predictions about what a large group of people in a given region based on a number of different variables how they're going to react to a certain thing that I say and within that say that you know something like let's go back to the weather this is this might be the first interesting conversation I've ever had about the weather in my life so thank you um so so say say um you know you know that a hurricane is maybe likely to come you know that you can't predict it um that ex that it's exactly where it's going to come through exactly the, the amount of damage but you know that on the high end of it you know to like bias you know you have to not just how likely is this hurricane to come through but what is the amount of damage that could be done and you're probably going to have this negativity bias of like well better better to set off uh, the, the smoke alarm when the toast is burnt than to have the whole house burned down and the smoke alarm not go off. Um, 
how much of that is in the hands of, say, a scientist? I, I would think scientists say that it's not their job to then say, well, maybe we scare people a little more than is necessary. Uh, you, you know, maybe you, uh, maybe you try to get, get people out of New Orleans and scare them a little more than is necessary, and you might have some people mad at you when the hurricane, like, turns last minute and, and misses the city. But if we don't get them out of there, that could be a tremendous amount of, of uh, you know, lives lost and everything else. Do you have any feelings about that? Because then that's not that's, – that's not just another thing that you have to model is, is like, okay, and then we, you know, it's not our right to drag people out of there. So now we got to have enough resources for FEMA to go in to rescue people that are there. If it does go through, if it's as bad as it could be, and maybe it won't, you know. So how, how right. do you factor all of that kind of stuff into the equation? That is the wicked problem, right? Is yeah. For science communication and science in general, I think. And I think this is really, this, what you just said drives at the heart of what I hoped that we would talk about today. Good. Because to, to invoke uh, David Kinney yet again, he's a cool dude uh, and you know, he deserves some, some praise. He wrote a piece for the Santa Fe Institute's uh, essay series on the pandemic he wrote the first piece, actually, um, where he said anything um, that basically scientists cannot help but make values judgments uh, about the way that they communicate their findings to policy to like, at, you know, as uh, advisors to policymakers. And this is true just in general when like, you know, I'm, I'll be um, talking to some of Santa Fe Institute's ecologists about a paper that they just put out on um, the niche, the, t the climate niche that human beings have occupied for the last 6,000 years and how climate models of various degrees of severity uh, over the next 50 years are going to change where on earth that niche actually exists. You know, like what, where are the comfortable zones for human existence? And like, unfortunately, um, their models show that the places that are growing in population fastest right now are the places that are going to get Saharified in the next 50 years. And so, you know, we're talking about on the weekend of the model, you know, hundreds of millions of people being displaced in 50 years. These are your kids. Mm -hmm. On the strong end of the model, it's 3 billion people. So mm -hmm. like naturally, they want to steer this away from the iceberg as early and as soon as possible. But the problem is, right, that the further out something is, among other problems, um, the further out the, 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 the phenomenon in question is in space or time, um, the less relevant it is to the equations of one's socially motivated cognition, right? So to, to call in on... Um, well, hold on. So, so, so David Kinney's point with all of this is that each individual scientist is sitting there trying to make this calculation about like how severe am I, do I have to make this situation seem mm -hmm. to get the, the politician to do the thing that it seems like they should do based on the numbers. Right? That and, I then have to model for. And right. Work back well, and then, the yeah, right. And then generally, um, this, is a, this is a thorny issue because scientists like to think of themselves as not... Um, making value value statements 
Right. But you have to in order and, to communicate to another human and being. And we can never be prescriptive in any way. And, right, we, right. and you can't say should. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. as but you said, the problem, the problem, as you brought up earlier, um, is that with statistics, you know, people are just inherently bad at understanding statistics. Mm -hmm. I'm inherently bad at understanding statistics because mm -hmm. as soon as I realized I didn't have to attend the class and I could use a graphing calculator, I slept my way through that class mm -hmm. and I got, you know, but like, that's shameful. Um, but the point is that, um, it was also really boring mm -hmm. and you know, that, that this is really what it's about is that like, um, it's about the collision between the amount of information required to communicate in order to get somebody to understand something again, versus the, the ability, um, you know, that we, we've learned all of these things in the last, you know, 50, 75 years, especially the last 20 years about basically like marketing psychology and social engineering. And this is something that William Irwin Thompson was writing about back in the seventies. He wrote an extraordinary book called evil in world order when he was, he was, I believe still a historian at MIT um, where he was criticizing the entire sort of technocratic paradigm um, because he was, you know, he was saying, yeah, you're always going to leave something out of the model and those externalities are going to create banal evils. But like, the, you know, the point is that like real, real simple example, um, I saw this extraordinary piece on NPR about the scientific poster presentation. Like if you go to a science conference, um, then you go to the, the section where all the, like, you're not the keynote speaker, you're some asshole postdoc that like managed to get your paper in the conference and you're, you're excited to communicate your results. And so you publish, you like, your poster is just a block of text, you know? Mm -hmm. And what happens is that there's an, there's like an ecosystem of attention mm -hmm. um, and you're not doing anything to stand out from everyone else's giant wall of text on their posters. You know, so like, even though you may be a genius in your domain, you're demonstrating uh, an ignorance of the attentional biases that we have that require compression, you know, right. that you, you have to be able to, as you know, this is the ultimate task of, a, of science communication is to um, reduce the dimensionality of the model so that it can be effectively communicated without losing important information and, and like misleading people. Hmm. And so you, you know, you're, you're in this, this um, sort of gray wizard, like gray hat domain where it's like, you have to use the same understanding and the same marketing psychology techniques that are being used to exploit people to milk them of their stimulus check, by the way, um, mm -hmm. you know, support my Patreon, yeah. you, got, you know, but, um, but they, uh, but you have to do it in a way that is getting people to act in their, what you believe their best interests are. And then, so there's this like, sort of, there's this Ouroboros, this like dragon eating its tail of, the fact that in order to um, point that insight in a, in a particular direction, you are making a value judgment about what you think is best for them. Mm -hmm. And so like that, you know, that brings us all the way back around to, well, what do you think is best for them is about the, the model of the world that you've created based on your, the, you know, the sort of metabolic and computational constraints of your own brain 
mm-hmm. and your ability and and also the aforementioned uh, bias that all of us have to um, accept evidence for new accept new information that conforms to what we already believe because it's cheaper for us to do so and then also to believe the things that um don't sort of immediately matter uh even if they're wrong so long as they conform to the social context which is much more imminent and and important so like final point with this or final dot in the network of stuff here is that um, on complexity podcast a while back, I interviewed social scientist Mirta Galasic who did has done a number of interesting uh, studies on social decision-making. And, you know, one of the things that comes out of her body of work is that um, for most of us, most of the time, it's more important to be wrong in the eyes of sort of objective reality, but right in terms of agreeing with those of us who are supporting us socially. Mm. You know, like her great example was the surprise Trump victory, because a lot of people who who you know, saw that like object in, in whatever sense, you know, they believed that Hillary would have been the better vote, um, changed their votes at the last minute so that they, they were not out of alignment with their friends and neighbors and families, mm-hmm. you know, and that actually for that reason, asking people who their friends would vote for was a better predictor of their vote than asking people who they themselves would vote for mm-hmm. because people don't know who they're going to vote for. You know, it's ultimately like, you know, each of us is, there's a, this is, this is, I don't think, you know, a a fact per se, but it's sort of a loosely the case that, you know, you're the, you're the, the sum of the five people you talk to the most, you know, that like each of us is uh, a work in progress. And again, it's like that evolutionary economics thing as everyone else's opinions change your opinion shifts because the last thing you want to do as a social primate is piss off everybody that is providing you with important, you know, uh, material or emotional supports. Yeah. And so the the further out, the more abstract something is, this is where it it gets tricky. It's like, you know, there's a lot of scientists asking right now, well, maybe we can get people to believe in scientists because of coronavirus. And then they'll believe in, in scientists about global warming. And it's like, well, you're talking about something that's killing people on your block versus something that might kill your children in 50 years. It's a completely different timescale and frame of reference. And it's like, you're not going to get, you know, until it's just a sad fact of, of reality that I don't think unless we make massive improvements to the, um, first critical, you know, thinking in education and, you know, the like K through 12 pedagogy involving people being able to grasp complex systems generally. I don't think that we're going to be able to um, improve any kind of substantial way on the baseline limitations that each of us has Mm. about, you know, weighing without even realizing that we are doing it, weighing, um, the cost of being wrong in the eyes of the people we care about versus the cost of being factually wrong, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I mean, 
Oh, man. I have so much to say about all of this, um, which is... <sighs> I, I have two really big things, and I'm afraid they would take us maybe in two different directions. Well, I, I guess I'll just start with where you left off, which is, in my mind, it, you know, this is just something that was on my mind in terms of... Um, in terms of appreciation for things not not like not like thank you science for all you have appreciation in terms of not realizing how much goes into something things like during this pandemic all of a sudden we have like an appreciation for maybe what the what your local farmer is having to do or appreciation for supply chains or things that you'd never you just hadn't really caught, crossed your mind. You'd kind of taken for granted. And, you know, as I'm um, now trying to um, charge or, you know, get people to support me on Patreon or to charge, you know, it's hard to, it's easy for people to understand, oh, this guy's live touring. I pay $20, $15, or whatever to get a ticket to go in and I sit in this seat and you know, get served alcohol or whatever, and there's lights and there's this whole thing. And then, and, and in this like digital medium, it's almost just like, it allows people to be like, oh, anyone could do that. These aren't, these aren't skills that have like been built up over, you know, 16 years or whatever, or having, having talked to, you know, you, you've been obviously reading a shitload of books and talking with tons of people for a lifetime. That's how we can come up with these, uh, these conversations on these topics that we've made ourselves a bit of an armchair expert in. And um, it, it, a couple things. I think about... Um, because my my dad makes countertops and he has the same thing where like everything just everyone just wants the cheapest countertop doesn't doesn't appreciate you know the quality difference i go to a mechanic i just want the guy that can do the cheapest job you know that that sort of thing um in terms of in terms of uh, so there's this interesting thing about there's a anecdote about a locksmith that when he started, he would it would take him like an hour to get someone's door open, and they would always give him a really good tip because they saw him working really hard and getting frustrated and trying really hard, and they'd give him a, a, a good tip. And then, you know, 10, 20 years later, when he was an expert at, at uh, um, being a locksmith, he could open up someone's door in two minutes. And now, and now, not only did he not get a tip, but people thought he was an asshole for charging as much as he did because they don't realize that they're also paying for all of this experience that he's built over this, um, this amount of time. Um, as a comedian, I'm telling you, not, not with, say, like, stand-up science or my good trip show, but a lot of times in a regular old comedy club, audience has no idea who I or, or you know maybe the majority of people don't know who I am I could have the best set of my life like I know based on the number of laughs that I'm getting and I can sense the energy of the room that went great and wow I just crushed it hadn't had a show that hot in a while 
and you'll see people just walk right by you afterwards be like yeah 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 like i guess i guess that's what comedy clubs are like like i guess you just go and you laugh a bunch and that's i got the product that i was paying for not realizing that i was way funnier than like the comic they would have seen the follow the the following weekend after or whatever but uh, and i'm not saying this to boost my own ego the point i'm trying to make i is, know that guy the point i'm trying to make is when i have the difficult shows when i have the shows that are a struggle and i know people can see it on my face that i'm struggling those are the ones when everyone's like hey great job up there afterwards <laughs> because they like they could tell how hard it was it was the times that I made it look effortless. And, and I think that there's something with like science, with technology, um, uh, where, you know, I don't know what went into this phone. Um, you know, I, I have no idea the, the work that went into that and the, the who, whatever genius, revolutionary ideas that, that went in that I'll never know that person's name. They, they might be out of a job right now for all I know. And, and I, I do wonder if there is a way of, like you said, I bring, I bring this up because you talked about education. I always thought you, you want people to appreciate comedy, get everyone on stage, have everyone try an open mic or two or three, you, you know, not, just like I encourage anyone that wants to try it get up there and see, you know why? Not because I'm like, I think they're going to add some great value to the comedy scene because I think that they're going to be like, holy shit, that was way harder than I could have ever imagined. And there has to be some way of doing that with, with science communication and, and with under, and with understanding complexity. Hmm. Yeah, you know, just something that I'm constantly thinking about because I'm a pervert, uh, and I de I definitely was thinking about it the whole time you were talking, is um, this this concept from philosopher Timothy Morton. Uh, he talks about hyperobjects, and we talked about this in episode 32 of Complexity Podcast this week. Actually, um, David Krakauer brought it up about your phone. So, you, you know, you talked about your phone and that's like, that's mm -hmm. actually a perfect example of a thing that, you know, people think of their phone as this sort of discrete device that just connects them to the world, but it's actually just the, the visible face of this enormous um, hidden architecture of like server farms that are being cooled by a river in ice, you know, like Ireland or, you know, that, you know, you charge your phone and, Oh, my phone, you know, the, the services that I'm getting from this device are like this many kilowatt hours a year. But actually, no, like Doug, Doug Rushkoff um, mentioned on Team Human a couple of years ago, his, his fabulous podcast, uh, a statistic, something like watching two hours of Netflix is equivalent, is energetically equivalent to running your refrigerator for a year. Hmm. Something insane like that. And we just don't... Hmm you know, we don't think about it because it's the hidden cost. It's like, it's, it's the externality. It's behind the thing. Mm -hmm. So like your, you know, your, um, your point about expertise, be it in stand-up comedy or science or science communication, um, is that a person 
is a hyper object. And we're only seeing the very, you know, the tip of that four dimensional being that, um, you know, you'd have to stand outside of time and really see the full Monty of this situation to appreciate, um, you know, why it is that your hour might be worth more than my hour. Mm-hmm. Um, or that your, you know, the, the mouth sounds you're making should be listened to more carefully in this particular domain than mm-hmm. the mouth sounds that I am making about this, you know, the, arm, the, the, the epidemic of armchair epidemi- epidemiologists, right, mm-hmm. um, is because of this. It's because of our innate incapacity to recognize hyper objects. You have to be trained. It, it takes... So again, it's like one of those sort of self-reinforcing uh, problems that, um, but it also comes undone, I think. Um, I, I'm in the middle of editing this essay that I wrote about, about expertise and identity as the property of networks, the, the networks that we inhabit. And it's not, like you said, it's not just the networks that we're inhabiting now, it's the networks that we've inhabited over our lives you know, it's, um, it's like a multidimensional sort of metric of, of not only accumulated experience, which would be, you know, how well your machine learning algorithm can predict things based on its training data set, but also whether that algorithm uh, has overfit the data that it was trained on and can make valid predictions about the future. So like in order for that to be the case, you also have to be you know, not not just knowledgeable, but wise in your in your ability to um, again to remain open. Uh, I'm really fond of of John Keats, poet John Keats has this this concept of negative capability, which is the the capacity to remain knowingly ignorant on something to know that you do not know, you know, it's kind of Taoist. And I, you know, I think that um, in a time when so many people I know jokingly acknowledge that their job is not so much about having a particular skill set in say graphic design as it is being able to Google graphic design and like know how to learn something on the fly, Mm -hmm. you know, so like expertise is somewhere in between uh, where you went to school and who mentored you. And then also sort of how well you're able to navigate this vast search space and pick up new skills as the changing circumstances demand, you know? So like as a, as a musician, I think about it in terms of, um, you know, my wife, was trained as a classical musician and I was self-taught and spent most of my last 10 years playing completely improvised gigs. I can't read sheet music to save my life, but I can improvise in an ensemble a whole lot better than she can. And so like, these are two different strategies. Neither is better than the other, but these like society is made out of people that lean more heavily on one strategy or another, depending on how stable the environment is and that each of these each of these strategies is an adaptation to a different environment. My environment was extremely unstable, you know. And so, like, if you think about it in terms of, you know, following coronavirus news um, with the sheet music of your 20th century science education, you're probably pooched, right? 
mm-hmm. but it's also it's it would be also the case that like it's not it's it's not merely complicated but it's also not totally chaotic it's complex it's in between those things it, it's not like you can just roll a die and that will give you the truth you know right, right. um there is some stability in there um, right yeah i i want to i want to actually talk about politics which we don't talk a lot about on the show but just just for a little bit of context and let me you can you can clarify if I, if i was just going to um if i was just going to do like a broad brush generalization of like um saying um just in the way in which you and I differ in the way that we use Twitter. Um, like, uh, my, my, Michael, Michael is very much like, Hey guys, we need to stop fighting. And, and like, we need to hear both sides out and, and, uh, we need to stop being divided. And I'm like, this is my time to be as cynical as I've always wanted to be. And, and I, I envy you. Uh, I can be very, uh, I, I love to, uh, you know, my, my upbringing was overly stable and, and, uh, I was, I was taught to kind of never, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And we all be positive all the time. And so like, you know, much of my life passion has been about like, I just want to talk about the darkness and, and anger and fear and sadness. And let me talk about suicide sometimes, you know, and I tend to romanticize um, darkness too much. I tend to romantic, I tend to, I know that Often when I'm cynical, I'm very embarrassed about it afterwards. I'm like, ah, you're just being a dick now for no reason. But I, there's like a little child in me that likes to poke people's buttons. So, but I, I'm curious to hear that this is within the, the, this is very related to what we've been talking about. I made a, po- oh, so I know nothing about virology. Don't have virologists on the show. Pandemic happens. I completely figured people, everyone was overreacting. Uh, I, I've lived a lifetime of watching people overreact to the news and a bunch of fear-based stuff. And, and I just, and then I talked with some people that I respected their opinion. And I was like, oh, I was wrong. And I think that this is like a time for caution. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not decided one way or another in terms of like, do we lock down forever or for what? But, but um. I did, as soon as I talked with some people and learned a little bit, I remember making a post that was like, hey guys, just so you know, for now, like I'm a comedian who I make my entire living working in three cities a week. I also talk with scientists. I care about my job and the economy and I want to get back to work as soon as possible. I'm currently, this is early March, I'm currently not going to even think about booking shows before the end of August, because that even seems optimistic. And I'm only even doing that knowing that I might have to cancel them. I haven't canceled my May shows yet, but I can just about guarantee you I'm going to. I just haven't canceled them because I'm not putting any money into advertising. And so in case a miracle happens, blah, blah, blah. But believe me, these shows are going to be canceled. And this seemed like pretty, this seemed like a pretty safe prediction to me. And at Berda, we can now look and, you know, just because that's how it played out um, doesn't mean that I was right, you know, as we said, but it seemed like it was the consensus. And, and 
the thing is, is I don't think that I have any privileged information. You know, the White House and politicians should be getting information from the CDC, but everything on on TV was like, oh, we need to lock down for a month to well, maybe maybe June, maybe May we start opening things up. And it's not that, you know, things are trying to open up um, here and there. But do you think that there is any, um, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I'm not, and I don't think that there's any like, uh, obviously politicians are, um, there's corruption. And then there's also fucking great, well-meaning community leaders that really care about the world that want to be politics. And I don't know how to be a politician either. What I want to ask is, do you think that there was incentive to say, hey, guys, it's just going to be a few weeks. We're going to lock down, even though they knew that it would be much longer than that. But you don't want to just tell all of the world that summer is canceled because then the stock market crashes or people just freak out. Who, who knows how the human condition is going to react to that information? Are people just going to rebel and say, fuck it, I'll just die then. I'm going out there. You, you know, it, it, do you think, or, or is it just, um, just completely telling each politician telling the side what they think that their voters want to hear or I, how, how is a fucking idiot like me make a slightly uh, you know a, a more accurate I mean I just I find it hard to believe that they didn't have anywhere close to the information that I had you know but it certainly wasn't what they're putting out there and this is from and i gathered that information over the course of a few hours they're being informed on this like every day by people people uh, bigger teams of experts than i'm talking to so so i i'm just kind of confused uh, do you have any thoughts i mean this is such a complicated issue i think we've addressed a lot of this already which is yeah that um every every statement that we make really about the world as it is. I wrote a, a piece uh, several years ago that's up on my Medium page called Art is Psychedelic, psychedelic Art is Advertising is Psychedelic Art. And I was basically, you know, saying that every, every statement that we make is an ad for some perspective on the world. And so, and it's, you know, it's sort of a William Burroughs, like language is a virus kind of thing mm -hmm. about um, the idea that anything I say is really not like me saying it. It's the idea using me to propagate itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that the ideas we know from, um, and, and, and then, and therefore is a work of psychedelic art because it is shaping the mind of another being, right? Mm -hmm. um, we know that uh, from some really fantastic work that was uh, reported on by the Atlantic, I can't remember who did the actual research, which makes me bad, but um, 2014, they did a study where they, they tracked the spread of fake news online. You've probably talked about this on the show. Um, they found yeah. that fake news travels six times faster than efforts to debunk it. And, and a part of it has to do with what we were talking about earlier about just the, the economics of 
accepting something that you want to believe um, versus having to like sit there and think about it. Like it's the difference between a reflex and, you know, a considered prefrontal cortex kind of inhibitory. Yeah, system one, system two type yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. Daniel Kahneman. Intuitive or deliberati- uh, uh, deliberative type of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, like, uh, one of the problems, you know, to get to your point about, like, well, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but is that um, with the, the higher up you are in a power structure, uh, the more you're having to sort of aggregate signals from all over the body of that, that social system um, and make these uh, statements that ultimately, again, like, you know, you're, you're making statements at the level of like the decisions for the, the entire nation, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you have to reduce people to statistics, right? And so there's, you know, in order to make the same kind of, dis- you know, if you're, if you're talking about a system, um, it, you know, abstractly, uh, you know, you're making a weather kind of statement, local weather, um, then the consequences of your, your, you know, the blind spots in that coarse grained model of the system are far, far less than when you're making statements that are kind of like, this is the burden of, you know, heavy, hang, heavy hangs the crown, right? It's like mm-hmm. the higher up you go, the more, um, first of all, the more conservative your statements kind of have to be um, because of the, the, um, the regulatory overhead. Like, you know, the bigger companies are just more bureaucratic um, in the same way that bigger organisms require uh, you know, a bigger heart. It's like scaling laws, physical scaling laws stuff that, you know, it's just, um, there are, I believe, sort of natural caps to how big a government can be and still um, address the changing situation on the ground um, as like a unified central state. And I think we're seeing that now. Um, so I'm not, I don't know that it's so much that you were, um, right. It's just as, as it was that like at our level as like the regular asshole level of armchair prognosticators, we're not as constrained in certain respects, um, as people higher up. Um, and we, we're not, we don't have to be as conservative in our claims, but also, um, that frees us up to have a wider, um, you know, like for every one of you that got it right, there were and, more and, and people. By, by the way, what, what what's important to point out is is I wasn't even I wasn't even right. I was wrong in that I didn't estimate far enough out. <laughs> it's actually like I'm not going to be back until like next year. I mean, I I was I was just slightly less wrong. Right, but for slight for every one of us that was slightly less wrong than the official ma- message, yeah. there were like a- as many or more people who were more wrong. Yeah, right. And like this, I don't even want to mention the like conspiracy psychosis that I've been seeing going on right now. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, just the extraordinary. And this is really what I wanted uh, to talk to you about. Or, 
this, this oh man I, I mean i don't even know if we should talk about conspiracy theorists right now because but this is there's a there's a compassionate there's a compassionate I, thing here i know but it's just like it's like i mean it's just like i just i, I have such i have such a sympathy for people who are trying to make sense as i am i'm not saying i'm better than anyone i'm saying like i'm in a slightly better position in terms of the people that I get to talk to on a regular basis right. than most people, you I, know, and it's helpful. I but mean, like, all of us are, are subject to all of these cognitive biases. And especially as, as things ramp up into like the radically uncertain, you know, if you really, if, if anyone listening to this really wants, um, you know, a, a, a real like thorough walkthrough of all of the, you know, some, this this kind of stuff um the complexity podcast has been doing a series on covid19 and nice. complex systems thinking around this topic mm-hmm. um on the podcast for the last six weeks or so with with david krakauer and i going over the essays that everybody has contributed from the sfi uh, science research network and like the the recurring theme through all of these conversations and many of these essays including one from uh, Simon DeDeo at Carnegie Mellon who addressed uh, Kahneman's system one and system two and said basically like, um, you know, our intuitions are failing us right now. You know, uh, computer scientist Melanie Mitchell said our analogies don't work, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that we're in a system where, I mean, we're having to, this is what people mean when they say, you know, that there's no normal, you know, I think I think it's extremely premature to call this situation the new normal because mm-hmm. it's still like in a state of metamorphosis. But the 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 theme through all of these is um, thinking in a principled fashion, as David would say, um, about how to navigate radical uncertainty. And no one has been taught this. I was not taught this until I was in my thirties. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's only because I'm hanging out with these people whose job it is to think this way, you know. And so it's just like I, I really, you know, I spent most of my 20s immersed in like just t- an aesthetic, delicious sort of um, like just loving, like in a Robert Anton Wilson way, just like pile more conspiracy theories on me. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like somewhere in the interference pattern between all of these wrong theories is the truth. Yeah. You know, the more the merrier. But of course, eventually you reach a point where you've saturated yourself. And um, so at any rate, you know, yeah. I just, I just want to say, I, mean, like, my, I don't judge anybody for oh, believing the most insane bullshit right now. I, I mean, uh, just, just so listeners know, so that I, I don't think like... I'm just being like some know-it-all or something like that. And that's what I'm judging my, or these are my political, but I mean, people like personal stories. My, my personal stories with a number of conspiracy theorists are similar to um, one of, one of the, the bigger ones. So I, when I started comedy, I had someone, I took a comedy class and it was this guy that, he had uh he was like a a decent comedian he was he was he was very good he was like really funny when he wasn't on stage he was good at helping people him on stage he was like just a little hokey a little too safe and and he had never had like a real job in his life he wasn't the most he wasn't the hardest working guy 
um, in, in the world and didn't try that hard at comedy either. And, and he was a very, very good mentor to me in terms of comedy and, and a really good friend. Um, but he also had, uh, he had gotten MS and he, in doing research had connected it to diet Coke, which, okay, fine enough. And then, and then it was like, um, and then it, and then it quickly became into this and the, you know, and it started with like the conspiracies of like reasonably enough, like, Hey, these companies don't care about our health. And until you like get to know him and then the truth comes out of like the real research that, ha that he's been up to, which is that, you know, you get down the rabbit hole far enough and you're talking about shape-shifting Jew lizards that control the media and are trying to poison 99% of the earth for whatever reason, even though 99% of the earth is making the money that they're control or whatever. But, um, and, and I had to like watch this guy who like never took any accountability for any of his own failings or anything. And, you know, felt helpless um, because of this, uh, you know, this uh, horrible health issue that he was having and um, just went down that rabbit hole and that's what he did for coping or whatever. And it ended up alienating everyone in his life. And I always think about calling and it's just like at a certain point, I'm just like, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't call you and hear about like, this and that about minorities and Jews and how people need to be Christian again. Like, I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't be a part of that. I can't, I can't indulge in that. And, and, and there's been, uh, you know, I've known several people, um, that kind of seem to go down that same trajectory. And I don't know if it's, I mean, to me, it looks like just a coping mechanism, when someone like are you, you're familiar with learned helplessness provide exposition to whatever degree you think it's helpful yeah, yeah just just a, like if you if you uh, predictability and control being the two um biggest stressors if um or or lack of and if you take both predictability and control away from a person they learn they learn to think that the world is just full of these unpredictable pain and punishment that there's no way of predicting it no control over it and it seems like there's a lot of people's consciousness making up fanciful stories to explain that more nuanced feeling so it's either that we have to be living in a simulation right now there's no way this I, i'm not saying we aren't living in a simulation by the way i'm just all that i'm saying is i don't personally believe that a pandemic happening makes it more likely that we're living in a simulation than it did before a pandemic. And you hear a lot more people talking about it. I don't, it I don't, does. It does make us more likely to have certainty that this is the case though. That's your point, right? That's yeah. Yeah. That it's, same, like, with, it's same with conspiracies and everything else. I have no doubt there's tons of conspiracies going on, but it seems like people that are, hurting the most right now are now the focused more on those than ever before. Same with the rapture people, any of this. And it just, Dude, I was like just coping. in Wichita staying with my in-laws for the last 
three weeks. Yeah. And to turn on the radio there, like I've always had a, a sort of shameful hipster delight in listening to Christian radio on like drive on tours across country. Um, I I've always, I've always appreciated the ecology of consciousness in this country and in the world and how people can take the same experience and make different sense of it. Yeah. Um, But Holy shit. Did that escalate quickly? Like it was a completely different Christian radio than I heard a year ago. And it was all of this stuff about, you know, mandatory vaccine, Bill Gates, rapture stuff. And like, again, I'm not saying that stuff is wrong. What I'm saying is that it is, it is the rigorous position with uncertainty to accept everything that you do not know about the situation, Mm -hmm. but it is the natural human response to uncertainty, as you just said, to crave simplicity because you know i guess this is kind of a strange uh, analogy but i do think it's it makes sense in in terms of like brain metabolism um when like we were talking about the first time i came on your show um if someone offers you dmt and um your brain is suddenly uh, we know this now through functional MRI studies of, of psilocybin, which is very sim, you know, similar uh, in certain ways. Uh, it increases functional connectivity between all your brain regions. So there, you're, you are processing uh, a much, much, much more information that's normally inhibited through, you know, like natural partitioning of those regions. And so you're, you're, it's you're trying to as we are with this you know daniel kahneman type situation you know we're we're no longer capable of relying on sort of the the sort of uh unconscious Mm -hmm. habitual assumptions and we're having to like sit there and think about everything that we're experiencing you know Mm -hmm. like if you're if you're tripping you got to like sit there and really like try to put on your shoes you know Mm -hmm. um and that you know this that's why like um th- for the same reason that like if you're on a really good first date with somebody or you're tripping your eyes are dilated because you're just you're 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 taking in as much information as you can but that's pulling blood and and you know blood glucose away from your ability to create a model in the default mode network of yourself mm-hmm. you know so like your um, all of us, I, you know, I feel like I'm a sort of a low grade sort of schizotypal version of this on a, on a good day, mm-hmm. um, where, um, I'm constantly absorbing so much information that I, I don't really have time to like form a belief about it because there's just constantly new lava coming out and mm-hmm. like, you know, the Island is changing shape. And, um, but like in, in practice, what that, you know, what that means is that you're not like, you know, as I know, you know, um, um, you talked about this when you came on my show last, um, that when you're in that flow and you're seeing the patterns of everything um, and, you know, you're just suffused with the, the uh, infopocalypse, mm-hmm. um, then it's, it's, uh, 
it's difficult to think critically about it. Yeah, you know. Yes. Well, <laughs> you know, you know what's what I'm noticing so much in this pandemic is is that you know under under stress when shit hits the fan and we're using a lot of system one, a, a lot of just like um, more. Um, you know, a lot of those similar cognitive biases and stuff do percolate to the surfaces. And, and so, um, one, so there's, there's a lot of funny little patterns that I even noticed myself doing quite a bit of, which is like, I knew it. There, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I knew it type stuff of like, People should have cared about science more. It's like it's like what I I would say, or or you know, this political party should have known that Trump was gonna like help us take care of the cabal or whatever, and and then and then this other party should you know people should have known that Trump is gonna ruin everything, you know, two things that don't necessarily have a direct relation to the virus. Uh, environmentalists are like. We told you Mother Nature was going to buck us off this planet. Like, really? Did you, you called this? Did you, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's every, the, you know, the, the, the survivalist called this and this is why they've been hunkering down for which, why they're the first ones that need to get back out there again. If they were ready to hunker down is another thing altogether. But, Great. I told you so heard around the world. Uh, yeah. yeah, it really is. Everybody I'm, you know, I'm guilty. And so within that and, and within understanding this new complexity, one thing that I've been thinking about is how, and, and it made me think of it when I thought about the DMT state is that kind of, um, first guess bias of like assigning agency to like if you think about how adaptive it is to assign agency to something to use this theory of mind stuff to be able for our ancestors to be able to predict the movement of a bison to understand like oh if a bison sees me it might do this because it has its own mind and because i can do that i can i can outmaneuver it and then and then I can predict this other person's mind when, when they're raising up their spear, I know that they're probably aiming to throw it at that bison to help. And then and since they're throwing it this, you know, such an incredible thing to have evolved. And because of how very adaptive that is, we tend to overuse that, that power and assign it to, say, you know, giving your boat a name or, or, uh, which is what I hear a, a thing that boat owners do, which I'll never be. Um, but uh, I give, I name all my guitars. Do you? Yeah. I mean, I it, it's, yeah, I, I, and my uh, phone, I, uh, first it, but off, the, here's, but it's a hack. It's a known hack because if you, because for the same reasons, yeah. if you name the thing, you care about it more, you treat it better. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I just know. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take better care of this thing if I think of it as a person. This is That's why, why when when we were in Kansas last week and my wife took our 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 one year old daughter out to a dairy farm for her first time, the guy at the at the far at the farm was like, "Don't name livestock." Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I do this with my own ideas and my own emotional states, which is like to have kind of this 
inside out movie sort of perspective of like, Oh, sadness, what are you doing there? And assigning kind of a personality helps me understand it better. helps me kind of cope with it better. But we, speaking of complexity, we seem to do that to these large dynamic complex systems as well. We seem to do this to earth or the universe and assign these kind of agencies to things. And, and I think that there's one, one interesting thing that I thought of is that, that people are more likely to assign personality to, um, to things when they start like breaking down, like when your, when your truck starts breaking down, it's more likely that you're going to start assigning these personal attributes to it because it's flawed. Like the climate are. Yeah. And, and, and so exactly. And so now, now that the, the earth is, or, or, you know, humanity is like in danger and life itself is falling apart. I think there tends to be this, this propensity to kind of assign more agency and personality to those large dynamic systems uh, as well and assign a personality to like a virus, for example, and earth and those. Um, and so I've just seen, I've seen a lot of that. But I think the downside of that is that it leads to some victim blaming because mm-hmm. now once you have something that is this agency, um, now, of course, it's looking out for you because that's, you know, egocentrism, boy, oldest bias in the book, uh, you know, so, so this agency is looking out for you. So and now when good things happen to you, you earned it when bad things happen to you. Well, that's some bum luck. Better luck next time. When bad things happen to another person, they must have been asking for it. When good things happen to another person, they must have got lucky. Uh, this is going to help out with your confidence and uh, keep keep you going. Um, and it seems like there's a way of 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 that we use this to be like, well, see if people would have just listened to us when we were saying we need to recycle more, you know, we probably wouldn't have gotten this fight. If people would have been gone to church more, uh, maybe they. And there's a sort of self defense, like I talk to scientists and I know science. So I'm not going to get this virus. Other people that aren't being mindful enough of science are not only that, but they have it coming. These dumb dumbs for not reading enough books. And there, that it seems like there's this kind of, you know what I'm saying? This, this pattern of that happening right now. Yeah. So I want to, I want to make sure that I get this. Um, there's a, when we talk about skillful science communication, um, let me recommend Ed Yong, mm-hmm. who writes for The Atlantic and wrote a great book. I think about I the follow micro- him on Twitter. Yeah, you probably do. He wrote a book called uh, I Contain Multitudes about the microbiome. Um, mm. But he wrote a great piece recently uh, called Why the Coronavirus is So Confusing. And I feel like it touches on a lot of stuff that we've discussed today. Um, and he does it with the skill of, you know, probably one of the best journalists I'm, I'm, I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. This is a, a thing that I, I just posted to Facebook uh, for people because I felt it was really important to share. And I just want to read you a, a little clip out of this essay, if I may. Sure. Um, he says, when a hurricane or an earthquake hits, the danger is evident, the risk self-explanatory and the aftermath visible. It is obvious when to take shelter and when it's safe to come out. But viruses lie below the threshold of the senses. Neither peril nor safety is clear. 
Whenever I go outside for a brief masked walk, I reel from cognitive dissonance as I wander a world that has been irrevocably altered, but that looks much the same. I can still read accounts of people less lucky, those who have lost and those who have been lost, but I cannot read about the losses that never occurred because they were averted. Prevention may be better than cure, but it is also less visceral. So this is speaking to everything that you, you, know, you were saying about mm. you know, statistical misapprehension and, and the hyper objects and so on. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, the coronavirus not only co-ops our cells, but exploits our cognitive biases. Humans construct stories to wrangle meaning from uncertainty and purpose from chaos. We crave simple narratives, but the pandemic offers none. The facile dichotomy between saving either lives or the economy belies the broad agreement between epidemiologists and economists that the U.S. shouldn't open prematurely. Mm -hmm. The lionization of healthcare workers and grocery store employees ignores the risks they are being asked to shoulder and the productive equipment they aren't being given. The rise of small anti-lockdown protests overlooks the fact that most Republicans and Democrats agree that social distancing should continue for as long as is needed Mm -hmm. to curb the spread of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And the desire to name an antagonist, be it the Chinese Communist Party or Donald Trump, disregards the many aspects of 21st century life that made the pandemic possible. Humanity's relentless expansion into wild spaces, soaring levels of air travel, chronic underfunding of public health, a just-in-time economy that runs on fragile supply chains, healthcare systems that yoke medical care to employment, social networks that rapidly spread misinformation, the devaluation of expertise, the marginalization of the elderly, and centuries of structural racism that impoverished the health of minorities and indigenous groups. It may be easier to believe that the coronavirus was deliberately unleashed than to accept the harsher truth that we built the world that was prone to it, but not ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. That's, that's Ed Yong for the win. It's basically everything I've been saying. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Ed, I, Ed Yong's I agree with sitting there going like, I told you so. Uh, I, I see what if people would have just listened to me. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I love that. Um, okay. I have a last thing. Sure. Um, sum up all this. And I, I think this is, I'm, I'm hoping this is, a. um, yeah, you're going to like this. What do you think about using artificial intelligence to uh, like, okay, we have, we have some here, here, here's, Here's the reality of the social system as I see it right now. How do we open up? Um, what, do we listen to science and like, you know, build models? Do we check in with like hospitals and see how many open beds they have, how many ventilators, how ready they are for maybe testing things, blah, blah, blah. Uh, no, it seems that we go, what political affiliation does your governor belong to blue okay no one is ever leaving their house again red (laughs) great Uh, it's it's myrtle beach spring break time uh (laughs) like let's everyone get out there and party for the economy and and like that's that's what we're that's what we're basing this on what if instead you had some sort of very safe, like, 
or I mean, I don't know how safe it could be, but you, you plug in enough variables of like, what we're going to use as a metric is if we think hospitals will get overwhelmed, our main concern is going to be hospitals capacity to manage this and, and we'll let people out accordingly. So if you're in an area with this lower rates of Corona, with this many open beds, um, with this many ventilators being unused right now that are on hand if they need more than this area, um, that area X can expand what it considers to be an ex essential worker by this much. And then you wait and see how that stage goes. And then you go to stage number two. Now we have these, this is what we consider essential workers. And then after that we have, here's a service industry that serves these essential workers. Okay, and then you have this like tiered measured response, but it's dictated, not, not dictated, that's the wrong word, but it's suggested, <laughs> it's, it's suggested by, um, by some sort of artificial intelligence database. It's like, hey, we put, the, we put our hospital numbers in the, in the um, uh, Dr. Robot, and Dr. Robot said it was okay for this region to open up a little bit, but not this region. What do we say? Do we want to listen to Dr. Robot? <laughs> what do you think people's... Uh, do you, one, do you think that anything like that is possible? Two, would it work in any way? Three, would it be beneficial? Four, do you think that there's any way in the world people would go for it? Five, is that bringing the Terminator to our door? Six, whatever other variables that you want to throw in there. Oh, man. All right. Well, there's a great piece. Let me, let me pull this up so that people can look this piece up for themselves. Timothy Snyder wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books called What Turing Told Us About the Digital Threat to a Human Future. This is the best piece on the development and underlying assumptions and terrifying sociopolitical consequences of artificial intelligence that I have ever read. Mm -hmm. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, it touches everything on like Asimov's three laws of robotics and like the way that, uh, you know, Asimov put forward, you know, conditions where are the robot, like we were talking about earlier in terms of like, you know, do you think that they were giving us bad information on purpose in order to, you know, that they're, they're mm -hmm. like, you know, when is it okay for the robot that's bound to doing the right things for human beings? Uh, when is it okay for them to lie about, you know, to, to steer things in the direction that they regard as okay? But of course, that's a system that's based on a particular paradigm of computing and artificial intelligence that is sort of, you know, sculpted by the blind spots of the Turing tests, which are, again, about sort of, you know, economic and theoretical externalities, like, the, you know, the, the way that the Turing test is set up uh, to sort of assume disembodiment of all of its players, you know? So anyway, it's a very complicated and, and um, lengthy, but fascinating essay that um, has, you know, I, I bring it up because there are um, some severe problems that I think you acknowledged in this, in that multi-part question. One of which is the, 
the lack of trust that we deservingly have developed, uh, justifiably have developed with big algorithms like this, that we started out this conversation saying, you can't, um, you can't prosecute this thing. Like you can't actually determine how it came to its conclusions, you know? And like, there's a major conversation going on in housing and criminal justice right now about, you know, these sort of, um, uh, actuarial algorithms that determine whether or not somebody's going to be allowed to take out a lease or whether somebody's going to be uh, subject to pretrial detention um, or whether they can be released early on probation from their sentence. Um, and without transparency into the inner workings of those algorithms, we're just letting the blind spots of these programmers determine the fate of people's lives. You know, and I think it's a very similar problem with this. It's that, you know, in order, we're right back to where we started this conversation, because in order to make uh, an algorithm that can effectively offer those determinations to us, uh, the odds of it being something that is transparent and accountable are negligible. Yeah, you know? not, and and it's and it's certainly it's not like any hospital that wants to like make a little more money or prevent more uh, prevent from being over you know can't game the numbers that it's putting out into the algorithm and yeah I mean there's all sorts of problems with like the quality of your data you yeah. know for people who um, you know there was a really interesting piece uh, a little tangent but there was a really interesting piece from the complexity podcast transmission series about Bayesian uh, statistics, which is like, if you have, it's about the assumptions that you come into it with, right? The example that was given by uh, SFI physicist, David Wolpert is, you know, let's say that you, uh, your test is, uh, for COVID is, uh, 90% accurate, you know, then, well, um, if you test positive, that means you, you have a 0.9, uh, chance that you have the disease, right? Well, no, because if the incidence of, of COVID in your area is only 1%, it's 1% of 0.9. Because that's the, that's the Bayesian prior is what they call it. It's like, that's the assumption that you have to feed into the beginning of the equation. And so like, this is the, you know, there's, this is the problem um, that, you know, it's the, it's summarized as garbage in, garbage out, mm -hmm. right? That it's like your, your algorithm might be perfect. But if your data is bad, then you're going to get bad out. You're going to get bad answers, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's like, even if it's, it's an impossible receding target, because even if we did have a perfectly transparent algorithm that told us that all scientists in the world agreed and were somehow magically able to explain to everyone that this was something that you could trust, mm -hmm. um, then it's still about the boots on the ground, like you pointed out, the, boot, the data collection that's fed mm -hmm. into it and our, and our inability to interrogate all of that, mm -hmm. you know? And so really this is just like a perfect storm as far as I am concerned. You know, I think that there's no, there's no um, getting around the fact that we're going through a massive experiment made out of, smaller experiments right now and people are going to try and like template like the success stories of one country or one state or one county 
uh, somewhere else, but the conditions on the ground will be different there. And, you know, I, it's, it's hard, really hard for me to say what we're going to come out of this having learned because, you know, the strategies that worked in one area will have worked because of the unique conditions of that area. And so we're back to like, hopefully we learn how to better model these things. Hopefully we learn how to better coordinate um, a community response and how better to prepare uh, our systems to be less vulnerable to this kind of a, a crisis in the future. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that there's a clear path forward um, for any of us. And I think that honestly accepting that is probably like, the first noble truth of living in the hyper object of a pandemic. You know, the, it's the first noble truth of, of accepting that our world is made out of complex systems. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we're back to negative capability. It's like, all right, my models are partial and provisional and I'm going to have to update them tomorrow. Yeah. You know, well, if I'm I, lucky. I, I mean, I mean, that, that's, Let's, uh, um, since this is the first episode of my podcast, um, the Simplicity uh, Podcast, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll be the yin to your yang. I, I mean, I guess the question that I asked was maybe, um, maybe the, even the wrong way to think about it because it's not going to happen anyway. But, it, but do you... Do you see any hope in us being able to better um, uh, use artificial intelligence as a tool? Not, not like, okay, we're not going to just let it make all of our decisions, but much in the way that, you know, a uh, radiologist would, um, you know, some of, some of the, um, some of the, algorithms out there are able to detect lung cancer better than radiologists can, but you still have, you still have the doctor there. You still have, you, you have the algorithm do it and you have the doctor give it a look as well. You have both things um, working together. Yes. yes. The short answer to that question is yes. And it's your real, what you're really asking is, is the same question that we've been mm -hmm. talking about with respect to, do I trust my neighbor or my brother, you know, do I trust my, my like local social network to give me the straight dope on reality? Or do I trust the expert scientists to do it? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, I'm not going to understand them. Right. And so it's, it's the same thing that all of us are now facing with respect to machine learning, which is um, what are the stakes? You know, like I'm going to be way more willing to listen to the algorithm if the consequences are sudden and imminent and severe than I am if the consequences are like distant and abstract, right? And so like, yeah, obviously, like if, if we're able to design an algorithm, I mean, and it gets back to that whole thing of it's like, well, once if the change picks up fast enough, all of us are going to be surprisingly willing to try all sorts of stuff that we were previously unwilling to try, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's, that's very true with respect to, um, listening to other perspectives we were unwilling to consider human or non-human you yeah. know 
So I, yeah, I, I, I was, it, it's funny, like right as shit was hitting the fan. So when I left LA, it was right at the time when I left in LA and came to Wisconsin, it was right at the time that things were escalating. Like every day the news was just like, whoa, what? This is like, uh, this is five times crazier than it was yesterday. And it, and it just kept on it was exponential craziness for, for like a week straight. And as I was leaving, um, I was, uh, I, I, I was, I had a, a few, a few different friends that I was crashing with while I was there. And one of them was a scientist and, and we, and, um, uh, uh, Marty Hazelton, um, who was my first guest and, um, and we'd gotten together, uh, to record a few things and we were, sh- uh, uh, what's the dandelion afterwards or whatever she like picked one up afterwards and like hey let's make a wish and i was just like this is fucking hilarious where the first time in my life there was like all of these like like you said the the majority of people are like hey i want to social distance and listen to the experts of this it's the first time in my life where so many religious people were like we need to listen to science right now. And I'm sitting there with a scientist who's going, we should start wishing. <laughs> right? well, I mean, yeah. I mean, right it's, it's a, I mean, I, let's uh, just throw everything at it. I, that is it. That is it. Is that, you know, if, if, uh, if things chase, it's it, not to like continue to append on this, but just yeah. as another example, um, there's the, the OODA loop, which is, uh, you know, it, it was, was the guy's name, uh, Hamilton. He was an air force colonel, um, who came up with this thing about like fighter pilots. Um, when you're, when you're having to make intense high consequence decisions under conditions of radical uncertainty, rather fast, you know, and it's like observe, uh, Oh shit. I'm going to mess this up, but it's like determinant. It's O O D A. Um, and it's, you know, when, when things are going slow, you have time to like, you know, pr- slowly probe the situation, gather evidence, you know, adjust your model. As you turn up the heat, uh, you just start rolling again, you just start rolling the dice, mm-hmm. you know, you just throw stuff and see what it works. And this is, this is an investment strategy. It was like, um, the faster, the more volatile, the stock market, the more you just play darts, you know, the more that, that, um, you know, a, a strategy of random investments is going to be better uh, under, you know, un, in a volatile enough market than, right. you know, you like having some sort of complex equation for what you should be investing in, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, make a wish. <laughs> Couldn't hurt. Um, well, uh, fantastic. I'm, I mean, I'm done with my podcast. What do you think? I think that's good, and I think it's I think it's dinner time, and I'm hearing yeah, a baby. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. All let's right. call it, dude. It's great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you. We did a full. This is the first two-hour podcast I've ever done on my show. So, um, so there we go. Um, Lovely. Take care of yourself, my friend. Let's talk soon. Absolutely. <laughs>